So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke 10. I failed to look it up in our pew Bibles, but uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 10. A story I trust we are familiar with. Luke 10, we want to start in verse 25, and we will go down to verse 37. So if you will stand with me, reverence of God's word. Luke the Evangelist writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy, and Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Go Lord in prayer. Father, as always, we ask you to open our hearts and our minds, our eyes and our ears, our hands, our mouth and our feet, that your word transform us, that we see here more than a Sunday school story, but uh, we may be convicted to see our call and our foundation to follow Jesus, to believe in him. May I decrease with you, can increase. In name your son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One of the great challenges when it comes to, particularly the Bible, we can look at other texts, ancient and modern, is the more familiar it is to us, the more uh, vast the number of interpretations may be. And it doesn't take long when approaching a text like this that the number of interpretations are, uh, are vast. Uh, let me give you some of the more popular ones. One is, uh, particularly from, from a liberal perspective, I, I did my uh, Vansom Div thesis on a liberal movement called the Emergent Church. Uh, you would read their, their take on it. It's clear they, they connect this parable with a call to justice, particularly uh, theologically we call it social gospel. Today we may borrow the language of social justice. Nevertheless, to them it, it, it is to, that the person of God should be like the Samaritan and be a good Samaritan and fight for, fight for justice, fight against injustice and oppression and all, all, all of that, that sort of stuff. Certainly that is out there. Uh, but I would say that most Americans view it as a lesson on generosity. Think about it. If, if someone's car had broken down and someone came by out in the hot sun and helped this family, say it's a single mom and a few kids, to get the car started or to call AAA or whatever it might be, we would say that stranger is a good Samaritan. If, if a house is on fire and someone is trapped inside and Spider-Man or someone off the street rushes in to rescue that person in danger, we would call that person a good Samaritan. If someone gives a gift uh, uh, anonymously and is very generous and it meets a, an immediate need for someone, we would say that anonymous person is, of course, a good Samaritan. 
This is usually what we mean by this phrase, that the, the passage means you should be a good little boy and a good little girl. When we teach it in Sunday school, particularly with kids, we want them to know God wants you to be a little boy, good little boy and a good little girl. Often what we hear among adults, what is the application? God wants you to be a good little man, grown man, I don't know, or, or, or a, a good grown woman, right? Well, let me tell you what this text is all about. I really just want to uh, spoil the ending for you and give the interpretation. Okay, I, I just want to let's just get this out of the way. I want to give you the interpretation right away, and then and then maybe we'll just go home early. Does that sound okay to you? Kentucky's on it. I'm <laughs> just kidding. They wouldn't win anyways. Okay, so let's start here. Here's the right interpretation of it. Uh, this interpretation has been around for 1,700 years at least. So if you don't like it, you're wrong, okay? So here's a, the traveler equals Adam. Can I prove it to you? The text says that a man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. The Hebrew word Adam, Adam, which we transliterate into Adam, simply means man. So when it says God made Adam, it does mean God made Adam, but more generically, it means God made a man. So here, it seems clear that when Jesus does not simply identify him with a name, but identifies him with the generic term man, tracing it back to Adam. But as we'll see, the story isn't about Adam. It's really about mankind, the descendants of Adam, all of us. And so we have the traveler, a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Of course, Jerusalem is going to equal the heavenly city. For Adam, it's going to represent the Garden of Eden, which Jerusalem is based off of. For you and I, it is off of the, the ideal of, of, of the heavenly city. You, you get a similar idea in Pilgrim's Progress, right? That, 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 that Christian is outside of, of the heavenly city. And thirdly, we see here that he is traveling from Jerusalem, the heavenly city, to Jericho, which, is, which represents the mortality of Adam. Jericho is a place of death. Jericho is a place of evil and sin. And so what we see in this Im imagery then is mankind, Adam, yes, but mankind in general, is outside of the heavenly city and is still going on its way to the city of death. And then what happens to the man is he gets robbed. The, the robbers represent, of course, the devil and demons. All of us as, as humans, we, we are on this journey from, from one city we've been kicked out to, to the other city, which is our destiny. And along the way, we face temptation and trials that are supernatural in nature. And then we discover that the man is stripped and beaten and left half dead. This, of course, is the condition of man or the condition of Adam, his descendants, mankind, due to sin. After all, did Paul not say the wages of sin is death? And that is exactly what Jesus portrays here. And who is it that, that we first meet after the man, Adam, after he falls along the wayside? He meets a priest and a Levi. It's no accident, is it? They represent the Old Testament. They represent the Old Covenant. They represent the Mosaic Law. And, and what we need to see here isn't that the priests and the Levites were, uh, were not, not, it's not that they were unwilling to help the man, but the law was unable to help the man. And so all they can do is simply walk around and move forward their lives. But who is it that comes to rescue the man here? It's not the priest or Levite. It's one who's an outsider. One who comes to, to rescue mankind, to, to bind his wounds, and, and takes the cost upon himself. The Samaritan, of course, is a picture of Christ. Jesus, who, who is rejected by 
the, his, his culture, the Jewish people, is why Jesus identifies here with, with the Samaritan rather than a regular Jew. And he comes and sacrifices himself, his wealth, his possessions, and, and in order to, to see to it this man that has fallen is rescued. Not only that, but notice what the man uses. Notice what the Samaritan uses to help the man. First, it is oil. Throughout all the Bible, oil becomes a picture of the Holy Spirit. And not only that, but he gives him wine. Wine is, of course, representing the blood of Christ. This is my blood that is shed for you. And where does Jesus, who covers this man with the Holy Spirit and the blood of Jesus, where does he take this man? Takes him to the inn, right? And what is the inn? Of course, it is the church. It's the church of Jesus Christ. Now, what do you think about this? Is your mind blown? I bet you never saw it this way, did you? I went to cemetery to, to share this with you. You thought this story was about generosity. No, it's a picture of the gospel. You and I are the man um, down the street. And it is Jesus who comes to rescue us from temptations and trials and sin. And he leads us to the body of believers for eternity. Isn't that, isn't that powerful to see it that way? It's a shame it's not true. It's a shame, right? I mean, when I first came across this, I thought, man, that'll preach. It's just not true. It's not true. The man who came up with this was a man by the name of Augustine. Some of you may, be, may recognize that name. Augustine is arguably, and I think it's rather inarguable, uh, the greatest theologian of the American church. He is, the, uh, he is influential for both the Catholic church and the Protestant church. Martin Luther, of course, was an Augustinian monk or a monk of the Augustinian order, whichever one you, you want to go with. In fact, you can see his Catholicism there, can't you? Where does Jesus take the man? Not to himself. But to the church, of course, that's very Catholic in, in that sort of theology. The problem with this interpretation is that it is allegorical. And even though you, you can come up with some really fascinating uh, ways of interpreting this, it, it's, not, it's not accurate. It's not what Jesus means at all. If you were to take the context of this passage and end up there, you clearly didn't pay attention to the context. Uh, I used to teach a hermeneutics class, a, a class about how to interpret the Bible uh, when I was a professor. And I always use this. This is my favorite example of bad allegory. And, and all my students, every time I did it, because uh, many of them didn't have a background in biblical studies and whatnot. Many of them weren't were regular churchgoers. They were all just, wow, I would have never seen it. It's like there's a reason why you'll never see it. It's not there. Unless, of course, you, you make it up. But the point remains is that the, the, the interpretations of, of the uh, uh, parable of the Good Samaritan are, are vast. And, and the problem is, is in these interpretations, we often oversimplify them. We want to make them Catholic, as, as Augustine does, or we want to make them about generosity or justice, as others do. But the truth is, and what I think Augustine did get right, is this parable is ultimately about the gospel. Let's begin with the question here, verses 25 to 29. Really, we could say questions. Uh, notice it begins there in 25. Behold, a lawyer, a lawyer was an expert in the Mosaic law, not just the uh, legal law of, of the day, but the Mosaic law. He stood up to put Jesus to the test. It's an important uh, 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 detail, isn't it? The man isn't interested in the answer. He's interested in what he could do with the answer. Uh, this is basically what we're doing with Twitter and social media now, right? This is what we're doing with everything. 
the one job I would not want in the world is to be press secretary for really anyone but for the President of the United States. Because every word you say is going to be misinterpreted for the benefit of the opposing party. Democrats and Republicans do this, right? Uh, that's not a job I want. But nevertheless, he, he's going to test Jesus. Here's the question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, every preacher wants people to ask them this question, right? I mean, this is low-hanging fruit. This is, a, this is when the fish jump into the boat, right? You're still trying to put the bait on the hook, and here comes all the fish. This is the question you want. What must I do to be saved? But remember, he isn't concerned with the answer, but with what he can do with the answer. But right from the beginning, we see that whatever follows, it has to fit the context of salvation. The question is, what must I do to be saved? So when we oversimplify the Good Samaritan to only mean be a good little boy and girl, we've missed the context of it. Just as bad as I think Augustine missed the context with it. So Jesus, knowing the man's heart, pulls out the Socratic method and he asks a question to the question. What is written in the law? How do you read it? Think about it. He's talking to a lawyer. If I had a constitutional lawyer up here and he had a question, maybe I would ask, well, what is your reading of the First Amendment, for example, right? Let's, let's, you're the expert here. You tell me, right? And so, so he, he, he's, he's leaning in on his expertise. And the man gives the answer that a good lawyer would give. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Of course, this sort of passage shows up elsewhere as the two greatest commandments. This man is, of course, quoting from both Deuteronomy and Leviticus. You remember that one of the big debates that was going on with lawyers and experts in the law at this time was, what are the greatest commandments? The reason that that question is important is because we do the same thing. Murder seems to be more serious than a broken tail light. Can we agree with that? So we rank this all the time, right? If, if, I, if you were to find out, my name is in the local paper. It is Noy County. I guess they do in Frankfurt. My name's in the local paper because I got pulled over. You're going to want an explanation because you're going to measure, okay, broken tail light, speeding uh, dangerously in, in a small neighborhood uh, without insurance, right? So you're, you're going to wait. Okay, Preacher can get away with this. Eh, we got to have a conversation about that, right? You know, we, we do the same thing. Well, so did these lawyers and experts in the law in that they, they want to say, well, okay, so I broke this law, but so long as I'm maintaining these laws, I should be in the good. And so most agreed, and Jesus is certainly one of them, that these are the two greatest commandments. Love God with your entire being and love your neighbor as yourself. This, of course, is what Jesus calls the greatest commandment. Love God, love neighbor. And Jesus seems to agree with the man. Verse 28, you have answered correctly. There you go. Good answer. Right? His question, remember, the original question is, what must I do to be saved? Jesus' question is, well, what does the law say about it? Notice, the law now is being interpreted as the means of salvation. What does the law say regarding your original question, what must I do to be saved? And his answer is, I got to do two things above all else. Love God with my entire being. Love my name. Jesus says, you know what? You are precisely right. Go and do it. Go and do it. So on the one hand, it seems like Jesus is saying, look, if you can't obey those two rules, you've got a seat reserved for you in heaven. It may not be a front row seat, but we're Baptists. We don't want front row seats anyways, right? So if you do those two things, you're good to go. Is that what Jesus says? Look closely at what he says. The question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Jesus is do these things and you will have life. Doesn't mention eternal, everlasting life. I do think there is a difference here in the context. I think Jesus is directing this man to consider what really is salvation. Because the truth is, if you love God and love your neighbor, you're going to live a pretty good life. If you are terrible to your neighbors, you're not going to live a very good life. Right? I mean, is, is, is that too simple? Right? As a general rule, if you're a good person, um, people in general will treat you okay. Not perfectly. Going to have hard times. Yeah. If you treat people badly and you're an evil person, people are going to treat you badly and with evil. That seems, if you want to get, live a good life, yeah, that, that seems pretty, pretty straightforward to me. The problem here is, notice exactly what Jesus has done. The man asks, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus points him to the place of doing. And if the answer is, love God with your entire being, and love your neighbor with all that you are. Then you will be saved. The question then is, are you doing that? And not just doing it a little when it's convenient, but are you consistently doing that? Jesus here actually raises the bar of those commandments for the lawyer. And that's the problem, isn't it? The man assumes that legalism will save him, that he can do enough, and that he is doing enough to be saved. I was thinking recently uh, about how uh, we do this as couples, particularly we men's. I pick on us men because I pick on my wife enough as it is. Um, but but we, we might say something like, well, honey, of course you know I love you. Why? Because I, I work hard and, and I help you around the house and I always remember anniversaries, right? You know? Watching a movie recently where, where this couple is going to do, renew their vows. And the man is incredulous. He says, why do we have to renew our vows in front of everyone? I said I do, and I, and I did, didn't I? Right? It's the sort of way we approach it. And so it is true in relationships, right? Words matter, but so do deeds. Words and works. So you can say I love you, but if your deeds don't match I love you, then you're not going to believe the words. So too, if your deeds say I love you, but you don't back it up with the words of I love you, it's going to be hard to interpret the deeds at times. You need both. So too, this man believes that he is simply doing enough and nothing else really matters. That is why there is no assurance in mere religious obligation. How do you know you've done enough? And that nagging fear continues to haunt us. What if it isn't enough? I've used this illustration before because it's so, it sticks out to me. But when I was in Africa, you'd be driving right down in the middle of the desert. There's no one or anything around you for miles. And all of a sudden, there's this bright pink mosque. No one goes there. No one's ever gone there. Just some dude built it there and left it. And the question then becomes, well, why is it there? Why did the guy build it? And the answer is... That, that the local Muslims there believe that if you build a mosque, that will be enough to give you the assurance you need to get to heaven. It doesn't matter if anyone goes there, just so long as you build it. And in that search is a search for validation and assurance. Now, you'll notice here, when Jesus raises this issue, he raises the issue of assurance with this man because the man is now uneasy, verse 29, desiring to justify himself. To prove to himself and all of his bros, right, that he has done enough, that he is in the good. He says to Jesus, well, okay, if I'm supposed to love God and love my neighbor, then who then is my neighbor? You see the trap here. 
The implication in the man believes is that loving God and love your neighbor is enough. The problem is, is what do we mean by these words? Have you, have you noticed that as hard as the law might try, it never clearly defines every word? Let me prove it to you. The tax code is complicated enough, right? And if you're a millionaire or a billionaire, you will pay a lot of money not to pay a lot of money to the government, right? Would you, if you had the money, pay $1 million to a tax lawyer so that you don't have to pay $5 million to the federal government? I'd pay two tax lawyers for that, right? Just to make sure government don't get more money. They're still going to get more money. I think they deserve but at least they're not going to get more money out of me than necessary, right? Wow. The point of a tax lawyer is to figure out how can we save this guy's money? How to use the law to his advantage? Or consider the Mosaic law, right? This is the issue that comes up in the Gospels. What does the fifth commandment about resting on the Sabbath? What does the word rest mean? When I was growing up, I've mentioned this before, it meant no mowing the yard on Sunday. Right? That was the rule in the house. On Sundays, don't mow the yard. We did that one time because I don't know what my brother and I did, but it was clearly very bad. And dad says, you know what? You kids are going to mow the yard today. And uh, the lawnmower broke down on that Sunday. So it was clear to us, God does not want us to mow the yard on Sunday. No? And if we saw someone mowing the yard on Sunday, we went all Pharisee on them, right? Uh, you know, step back, the Lord is going to strike them down. Traditionally, Americans have... Uh, closed bars in general, uh, and the general sale of alcohol on Sunday. These are known as blue laws. Is that what they're called? Someone know? I think they're called blue laws. You probably grew up with, with some of these. I grew up with some of these. Uh, other states have banned the buying and selling of cars, groceries, office supplies, housewares, and all this sort of stuff. Can't do that on, on Sundays the, because the Bible says you got to rest. So are you violating rest if you can't go get butter from the local general store? I don't know. I don't know. One of my favorite examples from history is that in 1789, then-President George Washington, ever heard of him, he was stopped by uh, officers in Connecticut on his way to a worship service because he violated the local state law of traveling unnecessarily on a Sunday. The President of the United States. We believers have always struggled with this issue of rest, right? And it shows up in the Gospels. It still shows up today. Sports is really no different, is it? Virtually every sport has a basic rule that no one can understand. I was watching the Louisville game this afternoon because I didn't get to catch it yesterday while I was at the wedding. And every time there is a charge or block call, I have no idea if it is a charge or block. Nor do the commentators, nor do the referees. You cannot tell me. And I know if you're standing there, you get run over by a truck, it's probably a charge. But that never happens. And I cannot figure out what it is. In soccer, not that you care, the, the, you would think the easiest rule is handling. It's called handling, not handball. It's called handling. You, you, you can't use your arms in the game. Problem is, is how do you define that? Now the rule is sleeves down. Okay, so you've always been able to use your shoulder, but where, where is your shoulder in and your arm began? begin? I don't know. So now they just use a sleeve. But even then, what if your sleeve is slightly rolled up because you're running? Is it now legal? I, I don't know. Or what if your, your arm and your hand is in a natural position, right? You're running and the ball deflects and hits you. Now are you handling? 
Some years, yes. Some years, no. If you're sliding down and, and you're trying to brace yourself so as not to break something, is that a natural position or not? Some will say yes. Some will say no. Football. Can anyone tell me the clear rule of passing interference? Look, I get it. If you spear a dude right before he tries to catch it, that's, that, that should probably be against the rules. But how much touching is too much touching? How much aggression is too much aggression? And why are we having this conversation in a sport built around destroying each other's bodies, right? But again, I'm a, I like real football, not this American football stuff, um, especially if Tom Brady still has a chance to go to the Super Bowl. I mean, what's the point at this point, right? So the lawyer wants to know what is the meaning of neighbor. But you see a problem with that? It's a good question. It's the wrong question. He skipped a step. If the obligation is love God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself, that is the key to salvation. He skipped a step. He wants to know about neighbor. Why didn't he ask about what it means to love God? Striking, isn't it? Just completely looks over that. Why? Because he assumes he's already got it. And why shouldn't he? He's racially, ethnically, religiously a Jew. He's good. He can trace his lineage all the way back to Abraham. He's good. So he assumes he knows what it means to love God. And he's want to know, what does it mean to love your neighbor? Why? Because there, I, I'm assuming, he would say, there are some people in this world that aren't my neighbor. I have no obligation to love. You know, like the Romans who hold us captive. Like the Samaritans who betrayed our cause. They're not our neighbor. God doesn't want me to love them. So to answer that question, Jesus gives this parable. And it's unique to, to Luke. It's found nowhere else in Scripture. And notice how gracious this parable is, right? It's, it's a question about loving your neighbor. And this guy who wants to trap Jesus in order to destroy him, what does Jesus do? He patiently, graciously answers his question. In other words, in the parable, Jesus is illustrating how to love your neighbor while loving his neighbor. It's just fantastic what he's doing here. So we see that the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, you got a man, he's heading from Jerusalem to Jericho. It, of course, was a dangerous one. When Jesus mentioned this route, every one of the first hearers knew that it was dangerous and that something bad was going to happen to him, right? If, if someone goes into a dark house and the lights don't work and the phones suddenly have no reception, you know something bad's going to happen. When the music, uh, you know, changes tone and it gets really dark, you know something bad's going to happen. When the camera zoom, zoom, zooms out and so you have the, the figure on this side and a lot of open space in the background over here, you know someone's in the background. When the phone randomly rings and no one else is supposed to be calling in the middle of the night, you know the killer's in the house, Right? So, too, when you say a man went down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, you know somewhere along the 17-mile road that was very desolate and infested with robbers, something bad is going to happen. And, of course, it does. But before we get there, notice verse 30 how he is described. He's simply described as a man. We don't know his ethnicity. We don't know his race. We don't know his background. Could have been a good man. Could have been a bad man. Could have been a middle man. Could have been anyone, Democrat, Republican. He, he could have driven Dodges for all we know. We just don't know. No one has read his tweets to know whether or not we should like the guy. All we know is he's a dude. And he comes under assault. And again, no one would have been surprised by what happened. Such violence was common at that location during the life of Jesus. 
One of the things I've learned since moving to Frankfurt, I'm blaming y'all for this, you know, the city of Frankfurt that is, I now know what the clear signs of your car being broken into are. If your door is not completely closed, your car's been broken into. If your trunk is not completely closed, your car's been broken into. How do I know? Because over the last week, my car's been broken into twice. In fact, this past Wednesday evening, while we were meeting here, car was broken into out here. Now, don't panic. Ain't nothing of value in the car except two Gideon Bibles and a bunch of John MacArthur and Alistair Begg sermons they still refuse to steal. I mean, my car's been broken into like four or five times since we live in Frankfurt. I mean, it's, an, it's, it's at least an annual thing now. We, we look forward to it every, every year. Um, and, and those CDs are still in there. Like, here's a good one on the wrath of God. Why don't, they, why don't they take that one? Here's a good one about John MacArthur preaching on hell. They can have that one. You know, I think Beg is preaching on one of the Ten Commandments. Pick one. You've violated all of them inside of my car. Just take them, right? But no, no, they, they really, I don't really have anything of value in there. But you know that if you leave your car unlocked in the city, someone's going to find it unlocked. And they're just going to see what they can find in there, right? In fact, the one thing that bothers me most is they stole. I've lost two masks. Now, I'm, that doesn't bother me. But the first mask they stole is one of my U of L ones, right? And you, 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 it's probably you. You're busted. Brecker 2-4, Brecker 2-4, I got the criminal right here. But the dude left behind his nasty old mask and took my good mask. So if you see someone out there, it isn't Jason or I, wandering around in a UofL mask, that's the guy. If you see Lane wandering around as a Kentucky fan wearing a UofL mask, he did it. I mean, the thing's like 50 cents. I mean, come on. It just bothers me. But could have had my CDs instead took, took my mask. But you know that is going to happen. Well, nevertheless, the man is, is left half dead. And who we meet first? Quickly, we, we first meet a priest and then a Levite. And the, the assumption here is that they are coming from the temple, working in the temple, because half of the priests and half the Levites lived in Jericho at this time. And surely they would know what the law says regarding situations like this, right? In uh, Exodus 23, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with it. No, so, so in other words, you see, if you see a stray animal, you know whose it is, go take it back to him. If they are under the burden of the beast, do everything you can, even if you despise the person, even if, if they say nasty things about you on Facebook, whatever it might be, you must do everything you can to help that person. Very simple application. Or consider Proverbs 21. These are just two examples. I give you a dozen. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. In other words, if you work in the temple and your job is to pray and you want God to hear your prayers on behalf of the people, don't break this proverb, right? Here is a guy. We don't know if he's rich, poor, whatever he is, but he's clearly in need. He's clearly hurting. And what do they do? They violate the law of God. The law says not just love God and love your neighbor, but it clarifies what it means to love God and love your neighbor. To bypass the poor is to hate God because you're loving your neighbor. This is what the law says. This is what the Bible says. And so instead of obeying the Mosaic law, they go out of their way to avoid him. And let's, let's cut them uh, some slack here, right? I can think of two reasons why they would do it. One would be safety. Think about it. Hey, moms, walking down the street, see a dangerous situation. Are you going to stop and help? No. Mama Cub's going to take care of the kids. Safety. So, too, if you know already this road is dangerous and that you are now in danger, 
safety is going to be a priority. The other would be ceremonial cleanliness. If he's already dead, and there's nothing they could really do about it, right? And to touch a dead body is to become ceremonially unclean. They have one job, stay clean, work in the temple. You can't do that job if you are ceremonially unclean. So they assume that the way to love God is to stay clean. But in verse 33, we meet the Samaritan. And just the word Samaritan to the first hearers would have, would have shocked Jesus' listeners. No one likes those half-breeds. They certainly weren't our neighbor. And so what does the Samaritan do? Verse 33, 34, he, he feels compassion for the man abandoned on the side of the road. And notice that he doesn't just feel compassion, he shows compassion. His pity leads him to action. That is what we call mercy. He does a number of things. He bandages up his wounds. He pours oil and wine onto his wounds. That's got a sting. He puts him on his own beast, right? So now the man is inconvenienced by this. And he brings him to an inn to take care of him. Now, this is an inconvenience. He brings a half-dead man, uh, and he risks his safety on the road. He risks his religious ritualism, his supplies, his conveniences. He, he loses his, his beast and his income. After all, mercy always comes at a cost. Now, today, we don't practice mercy this way, do we? Today, we like to practice compassion and mercy from a distance. Can I give you two fun examples? I think we've looked at these before, but these are the two examples that always come to mind. Here they are. The one on your left, it's my left, must be your left too, um, unless you identify as the right. Uh, on the left is the Coney 2012 campaign. Anyone remember this? Uh, Joseph Coney... Uh, was a man who was around the Uganda African area, was uh, kidnapping children, um, selling them into slavery, and uh, murdering just countless people. He was a terrorist. So the goal of Kony 2012 was to make Kony famous so that the world governments would take notice and deal with him. So what you would do is you would go online, you would share the videos, you would like and tweet and all that sort of stuff. And you would buy a little kit and you would go around on a certain day in 2012. It may tell you, it doesn't give you the date on there, but there's a specific day. And you would plaster all the posters and the stickers and everything going to make Coney famous. Okay? That's how you're going to stop the violence over in Africa from the comfort of your metropolis. The one on your right is former First President Michelle Obama with the hashtag bring, our, bring Back Our Girls campaign. What happened is in Nigeria, uh, Boko Haram's violence against uh, Nigerian girls became legendary and very frightening. And so what started was a hashtag, Bring Back Our Girls. So you were to get on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, and this is before the Tic Tac and everything else, and you were to hashtag Bring Back Our Girls. You got celebrity after celebrity going as high as the First Lady with a sad look, hashtag Bring Back Our Girls. And with these two online campaigns, the problems were solved, right? No. This has become what is known as slacktivism. It is a way to feel self-righteous and engaged without getting dirty. And you get this all the time, right? If you buy these shoes from us, we'll give people over here in the third world country more shoes. If you buy our coffee, we'll give a dollar to so-and-so to help their, I don't know, coffee addiction or whatever it might be. If, 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 if you'll just take the change that we're going to give you, put it in this box, it'll go help children over here, families in this situation. Oh, we do this all the time, isn't it? In fact, I, I was in a training one time, and we did a, um, um, oh, 
we, we, we saw the same company do two commercials 30 years apart, one in the 80s and one now. Um, um, it's it's, it's petro, petroleum jelly. That's what it was. What, what's the name brand petroleum jelly? It doesn't matter. You know what it is. Okay. So the two commercials, the one in the 1980s, the, the other in the 20-teens, something like that. The one in the 1980s, the commercial was, with this jelly, all your problems are solved, right? If you cut yourself, if, 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 if you, you burned yourself, I don't know, if, if you need to rev up the engine, whatever it is, all you need is petroleum jelly. Here it is, right? But 30 years later, the commercial was, with this jelly and your support, we are planting trees in the desert. We are solving climate change. Poverty will end if you buy this petroleum jelly. Now, well, I'm a terrible person if I don't buy this petroleum jelly. Are you solving climate change? No. Are you really helping the poor? Very little. If you want to help the poor, find someone who's poor and help them, right? But, but we, we do this now. In fact, we do this with missions, don't we? What we want to do is only give to missions. Now, give to Annie Armstrong, give to Lottie Moon, give to Eliza Broadus, give to Cooperative Program, give directly to the International Mission Board. Support a missionary that, that you know and, and, and want to support. All of those things are good and great, but we believe that it is enough. I'll support someone who's willing to go on missions, but it's not my job to go on missions. I don't want to have to do the dirty work. In fact, one of the things I was thinking reading this text this week is the pattern we have in reading this text. How many of us, let's just imagine the Samaritan walks these roads regularly and he sees one oppressed man after another. What is he going to say? Not just how can I help this man, but how can I stop the violence? You see the different question. Both are good questions, but it doesn't take long before the call to help the man becomes a call of justice. And that's where we are right now as a culture. We will bypass mercy thinking we are fighting for justice. When really, although we should fight for justice, yes, but we would do well if we focused on the needs of compassion and mercy right in front of us. Too often we're quick to turn to the system or to the state to solve problems when what God really needs us to do is to pour oil and wine on a hurting man. Well, let's just move forward. You know the rest. I've, I've gone longer than intended. Denarius is a day's wage. He worked two days to help the man, willing to pay more. And the collusion there in verse 37 is pretty simple. Which one of them demonstrated how to love your neighbor? And the man says, obviously, the Samaritan, right? Love the mysterious man. Therefore, go and do likewise. Pretty straightforward. What do we do with it? Two points Jesus is making. First of all, this is how the man of God loves. Right here in the Good Samaritan. If he's the one loving his neighbor, the implications are clear. Love even though society tells you to despise. Don't forget this is a tribal society much like our own. In our society, if you're a Democrat, help other Democrats. Don't you help the Republicans? If you're a Republican, help other Republicans. Don't you dare help the Democrats. They're trying to destroy the country. If you're Dodge, Ford, PC, Mac, red, blue, up, down. You can help your tribe. 
Don't love them. What does Jesus come and say here? Yes, even those that you despise, even those who may oppress you, even those who may be your enemy, even those who are the opposition, yes, you must love them. When Jesus uses the word neighbor, he means every fellow image bearer around the world. They are your neighbor. Thus, the man of God loves all. One of the things I've noticed, I think I've used this illustration before, is that we all have a crazy uncle because he's my crazy uncle. What we don't want to do is love your crazy uncle because your crazy uncle is like super crazy, right? We've, I've gotten used to my crazy uncle and I've got a few. But your crazy uncle's gone too far. What is Jesus saying here? You are the crazy uncle for what he's saying. But we love everyone despite everything. So Jesus takes the image of God's theology, but he takes it seriously. If this man is made in the image of God, and he is, you bear responsibility as a fellow image bearer to care for him. Very clear application. The man of God loves everyone at all time. Second application we need to see here that Jesus wants us to grab. This is how God loves man. The Samaritan sacrifices his time, his resources, and his attention to an unnamed man. And who is it that is telling this story but Christ himself? The question is again, what must man do to be saved? And he indicts the lawyer because he says, you are unwilling to help people like him. And the reason you're unwilling to help them is because you do not love God. What you need isn't law. What you need is grace. And the story of the gospel is the one who tells this story. He comes down for people like this lawyer. He comes down for people like that Samaritan. He comes down for people like this unnamed man to do precisely what happens here. To save us, to heal us. Jesus then is the true and better good Samaritan. He is the good shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep. Remember that the original question is, is, again, not about the definition of neighbor, but what must one do to be saved? And the answer for the man is standing right before him. How do we know? Because we see not just this is how man should love man, but this is how God has loved man. He gives up everything, risk everything for you and me. The law and its system will overlook us, step over us because we're unworthy. But not Christ who comes down to you and me and redeems us. You see, the lawyer would say that the law says do this, but it will never be enough. Christ and his gospel says it is done and all is accomplished. See, at the end of the day, this parable is about the cross. You and I are the ones left half dead. Aren't you glad Christ came to rescue and to heal us? That part, Augustine got right. Let's pray.